Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Now, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Among the memories we likely all have from our childhood and our youth, probably some of the more painful memories are those of when we were on the outside looking in. When there was a group we wanted to be a part of, but they didn't want us to be a part of that group. And we know how children can be sometimes in their tribalism and territorialism. They decide who can be in and who can be out. And it's painful for those on the outside. Or maybe you were on the inside. Maybe you were one of the cool kids and you were on the inside of the the coveted group and you protected your territory and didn't want these kids to come in. And so you erected barriers. Children do that, but Adults certainly do that as well, don't we? It seems like humans are experts at building barriers among ourselves on the slightest grounds whatsoever so to keep some out and to protect those who are on the inside. Now, um, there is something interesting about this text, and that is it's talking about a barrier, but not a barrier that humans made. Here's a barrier between humans that God himself made. And we will see in this text that God erected this barrier and God tore this barrier down. And we'll see today that this barrier was meant to be a temporary barrier. It had a purpose, and that purpose was fulfilled when it came crashing down. And the the wall of division was taken down eventually and definitively. Now, Paul begins this section reminding his Gentile readers. Remember, here's the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus and probably the region of Asia, the the province of Asia, which was in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, the western part of it. And he was writing to them, and it was principally, if not exclusively, a Gentile church. And so he begins here to direct his attention to the Gentiles. Now, what are Gentiles? Gentiles are non-Jews. 
So in the mind of a Jew of those days and to this day, there are two types of people in the world. There are Jews and there are the rest, the goyim. There are the, the nations. There are the, the, the Gentiles. And that's the, the way that humanity was divided in the minds of the descendants of Israel. And he wanted to direct himself to the Gentile Christians. These were first-generation Christians. All of them. Paul was a first-generation Christian. Uh, all of these readers were first-generation Christians. And he wanted to remind them of their past. He wanted to remind them where they had been and what God had done for them. In verse 11, Therefore remember, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, and here he says, called the circumcision, by whom? By the, or I'm sorry, called the uncircumcision, by whom? By the circumcision. So they were called by the Jews the uncircumcision. And that wasn't just a descriptive description of their anatomy. That was a, that was a, became a disrespectful term about referring to those who were on the outside of the, the circumcision, the sign of the covenant that God had given to his people. But Paul here interestingly says, we're talking about something that's done in the flesh the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. You see, those who were were circumcised uh, as Jewish men, they made a big deal of that, but they forgot something. They treated it as if it were a mark of accomplishment or a mark of distinction about who they were rather than a gift of God that he had given to them freely. So instead of uh, treating it as something for which to give thanks, although they did that, They also treated it as something about which to boast, as if it had been some accomplishment on their part. Now, that's bad enough. Uh, The Gentiles were the nations. They were excluded from Israel. But you say, so what? Uh, Every nation is excluded from every other nation. What's the big deal of that? Well, there was a big deal because Israel was, in fact, distinct. There were privileges that no other nation on earth had. And if you were not a part of that people, you weren't on a part of those privileges. And Paul goes on and he describes in bleak and stark terms what were the the consequences of being excluded from Israel. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Separated from Christ. And you think, well, of course, every non-Christian is separated from Christ until he or she comes to Christ. But that's not the point here. The point here is, If you were not part of Israel, you were not part of the Messiah. The people who had the promises and the teaching and the expectation and the hope of Messiah were Israel. And if you were outside of Israel, you did not have Christ. You did not have access to that promise of the coming Messiah. And therefore, he says you were alienated, alienated from the commonwealth, the citizenry of Israel, You were strangers to the covenants of promise. Think of the the covenants, the promises in the Old Testament, the promise to Abraham and to his descendants and so on, and uh, the new covenant promises. You were strangers to these and then having no hope. Now, this this is not a description of a psychological category. That is to say, oh, you were always in despair. You were without hope. That's not the idea. It is, objectively speaking, there was nothing you could hope on. You had nothing in which to hope. Because you were separated from Christ, you were cut off from the covenant. You were cut off from the people of the covenant. You had no hope, no ground of hope in this world. And then he says you were, in the strictest sense of the term, you were atheists. Not, not, as, a, not as a conviction, 
not as a, a posture or a belief system. You were literally without God, a God. You had no God, although, of course, the Gentiles had many gods, didn't they? And they still do to this day. But he said you had not the true God. That was your condition. Now, this, this description of the, the Ephesian Gentile first-generation Christians fits all first-generation Christians from the nations, uh, all non-Jews from all the nations. And that, that describes many of us, uh, our experience, if we did not grow up with, with the Word of God. And that's our experience as well. We were alienated, cut off, separated, without hope, without God in this world. So this is a very, very bleak description. And now we have the pivot. And this is the same pivot we saw last week. Remember last week, what was the structure? You were dead. You were dead, but God made you alive. And, and in very bleak and stark terms, he described the deadness of humanity apart from God in Christ. Under the power of the devil, under the power of the world, under the power of the flesh. And then he said, but God, but God made you alive together. And so this is really, this is a repeat of last week, in a sense, the structure anyway. So last week, you were dead, but God made you alive. And now you were far, you were far, you were alienated, you were outside, but God has brought you near. That's the pivot. That's the turn. But now, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near. So here, um, the, the remarkable thing about this, the remarkable thing about this is how God did this. He says here, by the blood of Christ. We saw last year or last week, rather, that that God made us alive by Christ dying and becoming alive. And now we find that God brought us near by the blood of Christ. And he mentions the, 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 the death of Christ in a couple different, several different ways here. Verse 13, by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, in his flesh. Verse 16, through the cross. There should be no doubt about how those who were far were brought near. It was through the cross. But what happened at the cross? And here's the, the irony and the surprise. What happened at the cross? The cross is that place in which the Son of God, in his agony, he turned himself to God and he cried out and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, what happened at the cross? Christ, Christ experienced the, the alienation from God. Christ experienced that distance from God. Christ experienced that, that being cut off from God. And that's how he brought us near, by taking our alienation, by taking our distance he took it for us so that we might be brought near. That's how he did it. And the result is, the result is, is now there is peace. And it's a twofold peace. Verse, verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So here he's going back to that relation between Jew and Gentile. The wall of separation there that, that couldn't be brought down except by the one who built it in the first place. And he says here that, that he has made peace. And he's talking here in first place, peace between Jew and Gentile. Now, how did he do that? He says, well, he brought down the 
dividing wall of hostility, the, the enmity, the dividing wall, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, this, this sounds like a, an absolute categorical abolition of the law of God, doesn't it? The way it's expressed here. But we don't have to, we don't have to go too far. We can go even to Ephesians 6 and find that Paul was actually used the law of God in a positive way to, to explain to us how we should live. So he's not, he's not abolishing the law with this sentence, but he is at least saying all those aspects of the law that divided Jew from Gentile, and there were many of those, many of those, not just circumcision, many of those, all of those aspects of the law, whatever it might be, calendar or diet or, or cleansing laws or temple laws or sacrifices or whatever it might be, all of those aspects of the law have been come crashing down so that there is no longer that barrier. It's not, not certain that Paul was thinking of this in his mind, but he might have been. We don't know. But there were signs posted around the temple. Uh, the ancient Jewish historian Josephus refers to these signs. And interestingly, in the 1800s, we found one of these intact. And it's now, I think it's in, uh, in, in Istanbul in a, in a museum there. And it is a warning. And these warnings were posted around the temple in Jerusalem. And they warned Gentiles not to proceed any further. And if they did, they would be responsible for their own death. And these were posted all around the temple. Now, I don't know if that's what he's thinking about here. But certainly that illustrates the situation. There was a dividing wall. Gentile, you have come close enough do not even think about coming any closer to God and to his people, or else you will die. Well, that's come crashing down. And God has said, hallelujah, amen. That's come crashing down. Why? This is the hostility. This is the dividing wall. And it came crashing down in Jesus' flesh because he died. And then he says, the two purposes there. In verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. How many peoples were there in the world before Christ? There were two. In Christ Jesus, how many are there? There is one, one new man. Now, this is an interesting image here, right? When we talk about one man, we see that there was one man in the beginning. His name was man, Adam, what Adam is, it means man. There was one man in the beginning. And, and then we've seen how Christ becomes the, the one new man. He's the new Adam. And now he says, now I'm making in Christ a new man, a new Adam. One new one that is in place of the two. So making peace. He mentions peace three times here. In verse 14, he says, Christ is our peace with each other. In verse 15, he says, he made peace. And then in verse 17, he says he preached peace to both Jew and to Gentile. And these are references to Isaiah. Now, whether the Ephesians would have picked this up or not, probably not. But these are references, allusions to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, and Isaiah chapter 57, verse 19, about beautiful on the mountains are those who preach peace. And also, there's news of peace that's being preached to those who are far and those who are near. Now, in the context of Isaiah, those who were far were those Jews who were spread out among the nations, the diaspora. 
And those who were near were those who were still in Judea. But Paul takes that and extends it. It goes farther out than you would have even imagined. It goes farther out that message of peace than Isaiah could have even contemplated. It is peace not just to the Jews in Judea and the Jews who are out in the diaspora. It is peace to the nations who were formerly separated. Why? Because the wall of barrier has been come crashing down. Now, how is that possible that we could have peace with each other? Well, he says, actually, there's a more fundamental peace. This is a, a twofold peace. Verse 16, so making peace, and into verse 15, verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God, both to God, in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, here it, you see it's a twofold piece because there was a twofold problem. It wasn't just that there was a separation between Jew and Gentile. There was a more fundamental problem, wasn't there? There was a separation between humanity and God. There only it wasn't only a need for a reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. There was a need for all of humanity to be, to be reconciled to God. Why? Because humanity had declared war against God. There was hostility on our part towards God and therefore wrath of God toward us as we saw last week being children of wrath. So, so in Christ's death on the cross, he made this twofold peace, reconciling Jew to Gentile in Christ and reconciling both to God as one new man. Now notice it doesn't say that Gentiles were added to Israel. That was the old system. They could, through a difficult process, be added to Israel, but that's not the invitation here to Gentiles. Well, do all these things, become a Jew, and, and you can be part of the people of God. No, both of them are added to one new man in Christ. The result is that through Christ and in the Spirit, both Jewish and Gentile Christians have access to the Father. Verse 18, this is the result. For through him, oh, here's the verse 17, the Isaiah reference, 17, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Notice the, the Trinitarian reference again. We've seen this throughout Ephesians. We have the Father, we have through the Son, and by the Spirit. We have in these verses the Trinitarian reference. We have access to the Father. You see, we didn't have access to the Father before. There the sign was, right? The sign said, Gentile, don't take another step. Don't even think about trying to get near to God. You can't. And now we both have access to God, Jew and Gentile, through Christ. Now, what's the result? We have in verses 19 to 22, the result is that we are now full members, full members. Gentiles are therefore no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the holy ones, the saints and members of God's household. Verse 19. And um, the, um, the implication here, if there was a barrier between humans, Jews and Gentiles, that God erected and it came crashing down, how much more, how much more and how much more easily should we be able, once we are in Christ, to bring down the, the smaller barriers that we have erected among ourselves? Social barriers, racial barriers, national barriers, educational barriers, class barriers, whatever those barriers are that we have erected. If God's barrier could be brought crashing down by God himself, how much more can we and ought we and must we bring down those other barriers 
that have existed for all of time. Now, the, um, we still have work to do, certainly, as Christians in that regard, inside the Christian church. But we can also notice something that I think is an indisputable fact, and that is there is no organization on the planet that is more multinational, multiethnic, multicultural, and multilingual than the Christian church. Yes. Is, is there more work to do? Absolutely. Have we overcome all of these? No, we still have work to do. But there is no organization that even comes close to the, to the, the multi-nature and the unified nature that you find in the Christian church. Just look at our church. We, we don't have that big a church, but we have a, a, a very interesting church. We have people from eight different nations Right now, eight different nations and five or six different language groups that are that are part of this church, our little church. We have that representation. If you go back another generation or two or three generations, we would have scores of nations represented in this church. Praise be to God. We are seeing, we are living day to day the amazing thing that, that God has done in bringing down this mega barrier so that we can now bring down these smaller barriers. Now, there's, a, there's an interesting, Paul begins to get, kind of uh, take advantage of, of dual meanings here, words. Uh, he says here, the household of God, uh, 19, he ends with that, the household of God or the house of God. And when you, when you think of the word house, you can think of that word and it means a couple different things, right? It means the building in which we live, or it means if I say, um, my house, and mean my household, it means the family, it means the people there. And we see kind of a play on those two meanings here, as Paul describes, built on the foundation, this house of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So he's using the, the illustration of a, a physical building here. And this physical building, he doesn't call it the church, we know it's the church from previous verses, this, this is built on the foundation, a dual foundation, interestingly, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and also Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Now, who were the, the apostles and prophets? We talked about the apostles in, uh, in the first few verses of Ephesians, um, and then he adds here the prophets. Now, these show up later on in Ephesians as well with two other groups, uh, with the pastors and teachers and evangelists. So, Pastor teaches probably one group and evangelists. So apostles and prophets, it looks like the apostles and prophets were foundational offices uh, because they were part of the foundation. You don't lay a foundation more than once. And so they were, they were unique. They were provided for the this establishment of the church. We see uh, in Acts chapter 13 an example. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, uh, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And then the, the church took a couple of those and sent them out to establish the church. Paul and Barnabas became, became the, the foundation of the church among the Gentiles uh, in, in Asia Minor and into <laughs> Europe. So it looks like these were foundational. Um, is there still a prophetic ministry of the church? Uh, is there still an apostolic ministry of the church? Well, we need to be careful when we use those words. But here it's talking about, about those who were foundational. They were unique. They were temporary. They laid the foundation. And it's been laid once, and it's been laid well. And the reason it's been laid well 
is because Christ Jesus is the main piece of it. They were the instruments, but Christ is the the, the foundation stone. Now, this is a this is an unusual expression. Let's see, it's translated here as the cornerstone. And uh, you've probably seen cornerstones on old buildings. They're, they have a date written on them oftentimes on big buildings. And the idea, this is the, this is the stone that holds up the whole building. That's one idea here. The other idea is of an arch where there's what's called the keystone, the capstone. And that stone holds the two pieces of the arch together. If you take away that stone that's in the middle, what happens to the whole arch? It comes crumbling down. So either of those images, they're, they're, they're two different interpretations here. Either of them work. It's holding up the whole building. It caps off the whole building. And that is, or those are, the functions of Jesus Christ. Now, the, 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 what's clear here is that it, it, it's not only held up by Christ, but here, and here's this a, kind of a melding into the other, other idea of a house. Because a physical building doesn't grow, does it? But a family can grow, can't it? So if you're talking about a house building, it won't grow. But if you're talking about a, a household, it can grow and should grow. And that's what he does here. He kind of morphs into the second meaning, verse 21. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So what is this saying? The whole structure. It not only holds together in him, but it, it grows. It increases in him. In other words, Christians are part of a temple. He uses that word temple that is constantly growing. And the, the most important aspect of this temple is the cornerstone, but also here once again the Trinitarian reference. It's a temple uh, in Christ's flesh because of his flesh for God by the Spirit. What's a temple? It's where God dwells. And he's saying that that's what we are if we are in Jesus Christ. Now, speaking of temples, speaking of temples, Paul, the Jew, writing to the Ephesians. Both of those capital cities had temples. Um, in Jerusalem, there was the temple first built by Solomon, then destroyed, then built by rebuilt under Ezra, and then not destroyed, but pretty much taken down and, and rebuilt by, by Herod the Great. In Ephesus, there was a temple, and actually this temple is very important in the, the narrative of the book of Acts. There was a temple to Artemis, who was also known as Diana, and it was named as one of the seven great wonders of the world, of the ancient world. It was a magnificent temple, but the problem with these temples, there was a, a tendency that both of these temples had, and that was to be knocked down. As big as they were, as magnificent as they were, the temple in Ephesus was built and knocked down four times. And you can go look at its ruins now. The temple in Jerusalem built and knocked down three times. And you can go see uh, the, the remnants of it to this day. That's the problem with physical temples. And you know, Solomon, Solomon was the first to build the temple in Jerusalem. And there's a fascinating, kind of parenthetical, almost despairing comment. The temple is built. They are they're throwing... Uh, throwing this huge celebration to dedicate the temple. And, and Solomon stands up and he, he prays this prayer of dedication. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of his prayer, he asks himself kind of a despairing question. It's in Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse 18. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I 
Hey, Bill, you, you kind of let the cat out of the bag right in the middle of the celebration. Here we are. We built this temple for God. And here we will meet with God. But this is puny. God, God can't be contained in something like this. This is the work of our hands. He, does, he can't be contained. He created the heavens and the highest heavens and the earth. He can't be contained here But you know, when we get to the New Testament, we find, but he can be contained in the house that he built. And that's what we find that he has done and is doing. No, he can't be contained in any sort of box that we'll create, but he can be create, he can be dwell, inhabit the house that he has made and that he is making. And that house is the church of Jesus Christ. Now, um, if you want to be a, a part uh, or rather, let me say it this way: If you want, what you want to meet God, go to church. That's that's where He dwells. That's what it says. This this is the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, if you ask a Western Christian, where does God live? What will the Western Christian say? In my heart. And that's not necessarily wrong. But the emphasis of Scripture is, where does God dwell? Where do you go to meet with God? Where do you find Him? Where do you hear Him speak? You do it with God's gathered people in the church. So if you want to meet with God, well, go to church. If you want to be part of the church, then believe in Jesus Christ and and be received into the church through baptism. Then you will be part of a temple, a house, that will never, ever be knocked down. On the contrary, it will get bigger and bigger and bigger until it fills the whole world. And along with that, you have peace with God and peace with everyone else who is in that people, in that body, in that church. Let's pray. Our God, we were far off. I was far off. And um, I wasn't seeking you. You sought me. My ancestors were not seeking you. They were worshiping other gods. And that's the case for all of us. Um, Lord, we, we thank you that you had mercy on us. You brought us near. And you made us part of your one body, along with our Jewish brothers and Gentiles from all the nations. We thank you that you have smashed down that barrier that you yourself made. And you did it through the alienation of Jesus so that we might be brought near. God, I pray that you would help us to do the work that we need to do to bring down the other barriers that that we or others have erected for us, uh, among us. And we pray, O oh God, also that you would make us active in, in getting this good news even farther out. You, you've preached peace, O oh God, to us who were far. We pray that you would use us to preach peace to those who were even farther. And we pray that you would bring them near, even as you have done for us. We pray this in Christ's name.